Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, the thing about the U.S. Postal Service, low-income people get the same service as the rich. Rural people get their prescriptions and paychecks and ballots in the same time frame as those in big cities. The idea has always been that postal service is a public good, not to be mined for profit and not tiered to give the wealthy yet another leg up. USPS is the second largest employer in the country, traditionally offering opportunities for people of color. And unlike the number one employer, Walmart, it doesn't subsidize itself by paying wages so low that employees have to also rely on public assistance. That's why it's so worrying that the current leaders of the Postal Service seem intent on driving it into the ground. We'll talk about the fight for the post office with Lisa Graves, executive director and editor-in-chief at True North Research. Also on the show, Attorney General Merrick Garland has ordered the FBI to work with local leaders to help address the, quote, disturbing spike in harassment, intimidation, and threats of violence, close quote, against educators and school board members over mask mandates and also interpretations of critical race theory, which has been distorted by conservative operatives to mean any teaching about racism or systemic inequity in U.S. society. If you didn't know that K-12 teachers and college professors are under actual attack simply for teaching the unvarnished truth of U.S. history, it might be because somehow many free speech advocates, including in the press corps, haven't taken on this disturbing encroachment on the rights of educators and students. Teachers, however, are fighting back, and a number of groups are planning a day of action on October 14th to shed light on that fight and what's at stake. We'll hear about that from Stevana Sims, public school counselor in Montclair, New Jersey, and a member of the steering committee of the group Black Lives Matter at School. That's coming up, and we'll get right to it. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group FAIR. When anti-government zealots take control of government agencies, they generally talk about efficiency and how government should run more like a business. The U.S. Postal Service is not McDonald's. It's critical infrastructure, so critical that it's mentioned in the Constitution. But also, what business would trumpet a plan to make its service slower and more expensive? That's just what the plan announced by Donald Trump donor and appointee Louis DeJoy looks set to do for what analysts say would be negligible savings. The first postmaster general in decades with no postal experience, DeJoy clearly has something else in mind other than shoring up the USPS, the most popular government agency and the country's second largest employer after Walmart. Unless, that is, he is stopped. Here to talk about what's going on and what might be done about it is Lisa Graves, Executive Director and Editor-in-Chief at True North Research. She joins us now by phone. Welcome back to Counterspin, Lisa Graves. Oh, it's my pleasure to be back. And thank you so much for that beautiful and concise introduction about 
the challenges we're facing. That was so well put. Thank you so much. Well, here's here's where we're at. You know, I mean, the L.A. Times, Michael Hiltzik wrote a column headed. Remember Louis DeJoy? He's still in charge of the Postal Service. But why? Unfortunately, he wrote that in February. And, and mm. here we still are talking about slower deliveries, higher prices, closing branches, cutting hours. I called it the slowest daylight robbery ever. Um, <laughs> and, and, and it's still going forward, right? Well, that's right. And, you know, the price increases have already started to go into effect for first class mail and more price increases for packages just in time for this holiday season. And so here you have a guy, as you pointed out, who was put into place in part by Trump. He's a Trump donor, and Trump named all the people to the board that approved his hiring to jump to the head of the line. And he has no experience running the Postal Service or within the Postal Service. And he is embarking on one of the most outlandish plans ever unveiled, which is to charge Americans more for slower mail. As you said, it's just not running it like a business, if that were even something a business would do. It's really a path toward the decline of the Postal Service to basically, I think, in my view, to make it so that the Postal Service, it paves the way for it to be privatized by declining the usage of the Postal Service by real people and by catering to businesses. Well, these people kind of telegraph their moves, you know, hobble and hollow out an agency, then say it's inefficient and should be privatized. They don't really leave a lot of mystery. You know, they they just don't believe in government delivering public goods to the whole public. You explained, and folks should look up the transcript when we spoke in July of last year, you talked about how this is a decades-long effort involving some familiar folks like Charles Koch behind it. But one name that we might not know is that of Ron Bloom, who is right now chair of the USPS Board of Governors. What should we know about him? He is someone who was appointed to that role by Donald Trump. He has worked for private equity firms, and he currently works for a private equity firm. He's basically a partner, a leader of a firm whose CEO has extolled privatization of public assets in the U.S. and abroad. And so his day job, the job that really pays his salary, Ron Bloom's salary, is a private equity firm called Brookfield Asset Management. And he previously worked for another private equity firm called Lazard that was involved in privatizing the United Kingdom's Postal Service, the Royal Mail, a few years back and profiting handsomely from it. Bloom says that he won't profit from any you know, privatization or deals with the Postal Service, but if he helps DeJoy basically destroy the Postal Service through these super unwise um, changes in cutting back airmail and lowering our mail and charging us more, then the Postal Service will be picked over by vultures, like these sorts of private equity firms. Well, and, and not for nothing, but there's a relationship between DeJoy and, and Bloom, Yes. You know, one of the things that was surprising in the Washington Post documented this about a month or so ago was that Bloom's firm is investing in the firm that was previously owned by DeJoy. And DeJoy's firm, that's called XBO, had just received an enormous outsourcing contract for logistics operations for the U.S. mail earlier this year. And he was buying bonds from Bloom's firm. And so, I think that's very troubling. Mm -hmm. The idea also that DeJoy said that he wasn't involved in the decision to outsource that operation to XBO, you know, 
I don't personally think that it should even be allowed to have the impression right. of him profiting because we also know, and I help document, that he's receiving millions of dollars in revenue from XCO for the leasing of other logistical buildings to them. It's just the kind of relationship that, you know, folks will say, oh, but it's not, strictly speaking, illegal. And you think, okay, but is it not a conflict? Yeah. Well, yeah, let, me, exactly. let me just say one thing. Is it, let me ask, is it true that amongst the many horrible and unstrategic things that DeJoy's 10-year strategic plan aims at, one of them is actually getting rid of that weird 2006 mandate that the Postal Service pre-fund their retiree health benefits, which we know is this manufactured crisis that allows folks to say that the Postal Service is inefficient or struggling, but it's because they have this weird fiscal thing they have to do. Is it true that we might be seeing the end of that? It's true that that plan, along with you know a bipartisan effort that's been pushed for quite a while, includes getting rid of that burden, which was really spurred by the Koch right-hand guy who was formerly the chair of the Postal Service. And so that has hampered the Postal Service's ability to invest and to get loans and more to modernize its operations. And so he has embraced the repeal of that provision. And meanwhile, he's embarked on this effort to, you know, basically, in my view, start to privatize the Postal Service and diminish the service that people get and close rural post offices as well as some in cities to sell off some of those assets. And so we're still in danger and Mm -hmm. Congress has not yet passed that repeal, but I sure hope it does personally. I do. Well, and yeah, with everything else going through, that might not be enough. And, And again, I would refer folks back to your July 2020 interview in which you explained how that requirement, that mandate was really set up to make the Postal Service more attractive to privatization. Well, let's move on now to the question, which is how do we get rid of this guy? You know, how do we change things? Now, I, I've read that it's it's not up to Biden. It's really up to the nine-member Board of Governors, but that Biden can appoint some new ones. Some of them are holdovers. Right now, there's a 6-3 dominance of Trump appointees. But what are the steps necessary? So many people are unhappy with the direction DeJoy has taken. What would be the steps necessary to actually get him out of there? Well, there are some people who think that President Biden could fire DeJoy as an agency head with a position that used to be a cabinet position. But there are others who contend that that should not happen because it's so-called independent agency, although it's one that has now been captured by a very partisan political operative who hails from the private sector and is I think, moving the postal service toward the private sector. But what really can happen and should happen is that people should be contacting President Biden and urging him not to allow Bloom to stay on the board, not to allow another investment banker that Trump put on there, John Barger, to stay on the board, but to replace them. So to nominate two people, two more people to the board who would put the people's interests first and who would counter and remove the joy. Well, finally, struggling to keep USPS from being sabotaged is depressing on many levels, but it also hinders us in developing a positive vision of what a 21st century postal service could look like. That's right. And, you know, the fact is, is that there are a lot of great ideas out there about how the postal service could be fully engaged in banking, which is a service that it previously provided in generations past in underbanked communities, and it can be a hub for internet access for 
network infrastructure for communities. It can be a charging station as well for electric cars. It could provide other things to make post offices attractive, like coffee, when people go to send packages and get the mail. There's a lot of things the Postal Service could do to really be present in the 21st century in people's communities in even broader ways to help. And it's also the case that I think the Postal Service ought to be investing in planes. The idea that in the 21st century, our Postal Service is not going to be expanding its use of planes to get mail faster is absurd. The competitors of the Postal Service are expanding their fleets of planes because they know people want things as quickly as they possibly can for a good price. And so you can't just set up the USPS to fail against FedEx and and other places and then wonder why they're not thriving in the way that they could be. Exactly. And there's so much the Postal Service could do. But again, that provision back in 2006 that hampered the Postal Service with this ridiculous accounting process that no other agency and no other business has for potential future liabilities, that process also forbade the Postal Service from engaging in any activities that would be so-called competitive with the private sector, including banking, which is really doing the service of the financial industry, the banking industry, and not the service of the ordinary American who could benefit from low-cost transactions at their local Postal Service branch. Well, it just seems worth saying again, there's a reason that the USPS is in the Constitution, and it has to do with the fact that even if you live out in a rural area, even if you are poor, even if you live in the inner city, everybody gets the same treatment from the Postal Service. You know, that's kind of, that's the organizing concept behind it, is that it's not like if you have more money, you get better service. So it's a value also that we're trying to support. Well, that's right. And, you know, it is the case that the Postal Service is in communities across the nation. It is not just the second largest workforce in the U.S., it's the most diverse workforce in the U.S. and provides so many opportunities for people of all walks of life, all color, all ethnicities to succeed and to have the things that people need in their life, to build families and build homes and build communities. And so if the Postal Service is allowed to fail, it doesn't just fail for America in general. It also would have a a terrible impact on communities of color in the United States. And also, I just think this idea of the Postal Service refusing, other than a teeny tiny experiment, to engage and embrace postal banking is another way in which it could be deployed to really serve the interests of our communities including communities of color, and it has not been, has been blocked from doing so for the most part. Well, the fight is ongoing, and I'd like to thank you very much for joining us this week. We've been speaking with Lisa Graves of True North Research. Find their work online at truenorthresearch.org. Lisa Graves, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a joy to hear your voice and be on your show. Biden rescinded the Trump executive order that threatened efforts to address racial disparities in the workplace under the implausible guise of combating anti-American race and sex stereotyping. But just because the push to stop people from talking or learning about racism, sexism, heterosexism, or this country's history of oppression has moved off the front page does not mean that it's gone away. Legislators in some 27 states are trying to require teachers to avoid what are termed divisive concepts. 
in classrooms and curricula, an extremely thinly veiled effort to force teachers to propagandize about U.S. history rather than teach it and to punish those that don't toe the line. It's deeply disturbing, but it turns out teachers don't take kindly to being told to underserve their students by distorting historical and present reality. A major campaign is underway to push back and reassert the importance of critical education and the professional judgment of educators. We're joined now by Stevana Sims. She is a member of Black Lives Matter at School Steering Committee and a school counselor in Montclair, New Jersey Public Schools. Welcome to Counterspin, Stevana Sims. Oh, thank you so much. I am so happy to be here. Well, the American Association of University Professors, the American Historical Association, PEN America, a number of really mainstream, respected organizations are sounding the alarm that these bills around the country are an infringement on the right of faculty to teach and students to learn. And yet here we are. So I, I just wanted to ask you first, what what is this looking like and feeling like for the K-12 teachers that you interact with? How is this all affecting them day to day? It is a direct attack on our K-12 teachers. It is to the point where teachers are getting fired and losing pay. It is to the point where there was a teacher who had a Black Lives Matter flag in her classroom and was asked to take it down. And because she refused, she was then removed from her position. There was a principal in Texas who was also accused of teaching critical race theory within his school, and he was removed from his job. It's coming to a point where threats, violent threats, are being made against teachers and educators who were teaching the truth and teaching education. It is scary, honestly, but it is necessary for what we are going to talk about <laughs> really soon. Absolutely. I, I think folks should know that it doesn't, even if you are not in a county or a region where there's actually a bill moving through, it still has that chilling effect. Absolutely. Before this bill was even passed, to think about the teachers, the black teachers that even I had in my school system that were pushed out because they were teaching critical race theory within the classroom, been exposing systemic racism to juniors in high school and telling them to use their voice and empowering students. And so even before this bill has been passed, there has still been attacks on teachers teaching critical race theory and using a critical race lens within their classrooms. So the saga continues, unfortunately. And this is showing how important critical race theory is, because if it wasn't that important, they wouldn't be trying to silence it. Absolutely. And we should note, and listeners probably know, that the proponents of this campaign, this gagging campaign, they don't know what critical race theory is. (laughs) Exactly. It's jargon to them. Christopher Rufo, the architect of the campaign, said... Quote, the goal is to have the public read something crazy in the newspaper and immediately think critical race theory, close quotes. They're just throwing out there that the school systems that they're going after may never have said the words critical race theory. It's just about teaching about inequity. Well, that's why Black Lives Matter at School and African-American Policy Forum, where I'm on the board, that's what this whole 
teach truth, truth be told, these campaigns are about. So I just want to ask you, what are you all up to this month and what are the goals of these actions? We are working. (laughs) My, 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 my. All the people that have been coming to these working group meetings, we're working. So with that being said, there are spaces where organizations can endorse the day of action for October 14th. Mm -hmm. There are spaces where they can share on social media. They can amplify what we are trying to do. And just imagine what social media would look like if all you see is teach truth, teach truth, truth be told, and all these hashtags. Just imagine the reverberation that is going to be. So we have to amplify. We have to share the message. We have to let people know that on October 14th, we are all mobilizing to teach the truth in our classrooms, in our conversations, in our schools. If teachers are unsure where to start, because we are all in different places in our activism and in our movement. And so we have to reach those fence sitters. We have to reach those who want to do something but are not sure where to start. And so we have curriculum. Black Lives Matter at school has been working on curriculum because it fits within our year of purpose. But within that, you can go on blacklivesmatteratschool.com and you can find the curriculum. So not only do we have curriculum for this year's year of purpose, but we also have archived curriculum as well that teachers can have access to. You can also plan a virtual field trip for your students. As we know, COVID is still a real thing, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And so there are virtual field trips that you can plan. Zen Education Project dot org is zenedproject.org will have access to virtual field trips as well as Black Lives Matter at school. And then wear your t-shirt. Put your message across your chest. Teach truth. And even if you don't feel comfortable, and I'm speaking to those who may be under attack under this bill and those who may not feel comfortable necessarily teaching, you can still wear your t-shirt in solidarity with us saying that we are going to teach the truth. October 14th is a day of action, and that is a focus, but this is a much bigger project. Yes. When you talk about that year of purpose, what are you talking about? The reason why October 14th is so significant is because it is the birthday of George Floyd. And so Black Lives Matter at school uses the birthday of George Floyd to launch the year of purpose. So what that is is that we have 13 guiding principles that can also be found on our website. We know that a one hit is not going to change anything. There has to be this constant push against this critical race theory bill. And then Education Project as well does have resources, but Black Lives Matter at School curriculum is on the website that can be used to guide your year of purpose in teaching the truth. It seems like such classic backlash politics because we have social movements and just a general recognition of the continued existence of racism and of inequity. They haven't disappeared. We're not a shining city on a hill. And just the idea that we have to stop talking about that and that will somehow make it untrue. It's so regressive. And that's why I'm concerned that, you know, I'm not sure where I'm hearing the free speech folks. You know, it just feels like teachers are on the front line and leading the charge here, you know, which is terrific. But I mean, we need some allies and support. It's very true. And it's funny that you say that. I just left the working group meeting. America is a very much anti-history place. Right. 
when we talk about slavery and we talk about indigenous people being taken off their land and their land being stolen, and it's like, oh, you need to forget that. That happened so many years ago. When we move in this anti-historical space of America, it really stunts us to kind of warp what's actually happening now, because as we know, history already affected the future in which we live in right now. And I'm just thinking about students. Haven't we got beyond the empty vessel idea of teaching, you know, that students come in just (laughs) empty and then teachers fill them up with stuff? Students are coming into school. They know their experience. They know their life. So when you have a Mexican-American, a Somali-American, African-American, to tell them your people did nothing and are nothing, that's just a crime, it seems like to me. Absolutely. And just imagine how dehumanizing that is and why sometimes our kids of color disconnect from education because of the messages that are being sent. Folks may be getting tangled up thinking it's about critical race theory and they don't really know what that is or it's somehow about special lesson plans. But it's also in a fundamental way about power and about who gets to decide what educators do in their classroom. I'm not sure people understand quite how radical this move is to tell teachers what they can and cannot teach? Actually, it infringes on academic freedom. It infringes on, like you said earlier, freedom of speech. But what I think is beneficial, though, for our K-12 teachers is that the National Education Association has endorsed the Day of Action of Teach Truth, which is huge because our unions are our biggest advocates Mm -hmm. at times. And so to have the National Education Association endorse the Day of Action is huge. And with that, alongside AAPF, they will be doing a Know Your Right session. And the AAPF Teach Truth celebration will be at 3 p.m. on October 14th. And the NEA will be doing a Know Your Rights for K-12 educators. And that's something that everyone can get involved in. You don't have to be a teacher. Absolutely. And it affects all of us Mm -hmm. all the time in terms of what we're able to talk about. Well, let me just ask you, the feeling, though, is, I mean, I can imagine teachers feel frightened and disturbed and threatened, but I also hear a lot of energy and a lot of positive, we know what we're about here. Absolutely. And it's uplifting for sure. And so it's just about finding those spaces. So once again... The resource is uh, blacklivesmatteratschool.com, zenedproject.org. Making sure that you join us on the Day of Action on October 14th. All right. Well, onward. Onward and upward. We've been speaking with Stevana Sims. We will keep our eyes on this story. Thank you so much, Stevana Sims, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, FAIR.org. The show's engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thank you for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.